Welcome to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Jenna, and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institution. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Pablo Padilla, Dr. Brooke Munger, and Dr. Jackie Tran, who are residents at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. Pablo is a fifth-year resident. He's originally from El Paso and completed college at the University of Texas at El Paso. He then completed medical school at the University of Texas Medical Branch, or UTMB. His academic interests include complex cancer and trauma reconstruction. Brooke is a fourth-year resident. She's originally from Greenwood, Indiana. She completed college at Miami University and medical school at Indiana University. Her academic interests include hand surgery, cosmetic surgery, resident education, work-life balance, and business and medicine. And last but not least, Jackie is a third-year resident. She's originally from Arlington, Texas. She completed college at the University of Texas Arlington and medical school at UTMB. Her interests include hand surgery, peripheral nerve, and resident education. Pablo, Brooke, Jackie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I'd love to get started by hearing kind of a big picture overview about the structure of your program at UTMB. Dr. Phillips, our chair, likes to say we're the oldest school west of the Mississippi, UTMB. And so our program has a deep roots in sort of the history of plastic surgery. In Galveston, Texas, actually, the first board of plastic surgery was actually created. Our program is an integrated program, four residents per year. There are 24 residents currently, and it's pretty family-oriented. The resident camaraderie is high in our program. I'd love to hear about how much plastics experience you get across the first three years. In our first year, you get three specific months of plastic surgery. For second year, it's three, but for plastic surgery-related rotations, it evens out to be actually six months as a second year. And we get a lot of focus, especially even on our general surgery rotations, where you have preference because they know you're a plastic surgery resident, where, for example, we get put with the breast surgeons quite a bit. So then you need a certain amount of breast cases as well. But it's good to see, you know, the oncologic aspect of those types of surgeries. And then also Dr. Tyler, who's the chair of general surgery. I know I personally was with him quite a bit, and he does other types of cancer surgeries that we do a lot of the coverage for him as well. And then Jackie, I guess you could speak on your third year, specifically what you're doing right now. Yeah, definitely. So my third year has been great, a lot less general surgery. I started the year with two months of UTMB recon, and so that's the adult service. We have kind of two recon services split for PD and adult. Our PD side is affiliated with Shriners Galveston, which I'd say about 90% is related to burn injuries and reconstructing really severe and complex burn injuries. And the other 10% is other congenital anomalies that we see from time to time in clinic. And in addition to recon, I got the opportunity to go to Austin we have the, an affiliation agreement with UT Austin Dell Medical School. And so there's a pretty large size group of plastic surgeons there who do a lot of craniofacial and hand surgery. So I got to do a month of that, loved Austin. At the moment, I'm on my third month of PD burn recon, which is uh, what I talked about at Shriners. We also rotate through oral surgery 
for a month and on derm and anesthesia. And then I finish off my year with three months of breast and body and aesthetics. So it's a pretty well-rounded experience for a third year, I think. Yeah. And as a three, she's actually the chief over at the Shriners right now. So it's her and a second year resident. So that's kind of our, what I feel our first introduction really into strict plastics where a PGY2 and a three are running the service. Breast and body three months, Shriners three months, two months of adult recon, a month in Austin, and then you said derm anesthesia, and then oral maxillofacial surgery, which is, again, they try to stack those rotations, such as we do a month with ENT during our second year, as well as orthopedic hand, where these, quote, non-plastics, but they're still very related to plastic surgery. And then what's the structure like in your fourth through six years? So I'll just go through fourth year. I started off being the chief of our adult recon service with Jackie. And so I did that for three months, and then I did three months of breast and body, and that was, again, mainly in UTMB and Galveston. And then I'm currently actually up in Houston area at a hospital called St. Joseph's, and I've been here for three months. And then I have a month of ortho hand, and then two months of craniofacial. As a fifth and sixth year, it's sort of like the the prolonged rotation. So these are the three-month blocks. We do essentially the same thing. We don't do the, the recon service anymore, which in the adult side is a combination of burn reconstruction with our blocker burn unit and also a lot of trauma reconstruction and generalized reconstruction that you would do in like an inpatient hospital setting. In our fifth year, you have the ability to do three months at MD Anderson, which is predominantly sort of complex oncological reconstruction. We do three months on our breast and body contouring service, which is the, our chair service, which essentially is... Massive weight loss patients, a lot of abdominoplasties. We have, you know, a little bit of aesthetics uh, sprinkled in, and we also have our breast reconstruction service on that rotation, which is another three months. And then we also rotate in combination with our local aesthetic partners. We have a group here in Houston called the Aesthetic Center for Plastic Surgery. We also go to St. Joseph's Hospital, which is predominantly run by aesthetic plastic surgeons. And so you do a lot of private practice aesthetic type of cases. You see how private practice is run. The Aesthetic Center for Plastic Surgery or ACPS is a great learning experience because you get to see both the business side, the clinical side, and you get to see also the surgical side. We also rotate with different community partners that we have as well, and we get to go to their offices during that time. And then the last block is essentially a intense hand rotation where you do two months of hand surgery, and you're essentially on your own in the hand surgery service this year. So it's a combination of like ortho hand and plastics hand. You do like a sort of like a capstone craniofacial block, and it's essentially you do cleft care, and you also do any craniofacial reconstruction from trauma in our inpatient hospital with uh, one of our attendings here. Our craniofacial rotation, you do like the same thing. It's split up with hand. You do some months with ortho hand and some months with plastics hand and the craniofacial. It's some months with the, our own attendings here and then some months with the Austin plastic surgeons. So there's some flexibility in the senior years, partially based on your interests? Definitely. And I think that our program is unique in that there is no sort of bad answer for what you want to do. Dr. Phillips and Dr. Parker are really open to, you know, whatever career goals you want. And you kind of structure your training, of course, with, with limitations, but you structure your training, your pathway to sort of optimize your career pathway. A lot of our previous alumni have gone into 
sort of complex reconstruction at MD Anderson or gone into microfellowship or hand fellowship, but some of them go into strange private practice or aesthetic surgery fellowships. And so there's no limitation on what you can do. And Dr. Phillips and Dr. Park really open up sort of the avenues for you to be able to do these rotations. You've mentioned a couple of the different sites you're at. So Shriners, going to UT Austin, but just to make sure I'm not missing any, can you go through those different sites? Definitely. We do Shriners Hospital of Texas, which that's that's what it's called now. Our University of Texas Medical Branch, which is three campus hospital, which is Galveston based. And you also have something in the, it's called the Bay Area, which is in the suburbs in between Houston and Galveston. We rotate at St. Joseph's Hospital, Parkland Hospital, and we rotate at the Aesthetic Center for Plastic Surgery. We rotate at Dell Seton, which is like the UT Austin Dell Medical Group, and MD Anderson Cancer Center. And the Shriners Hospital, it used to be divided between there was a Shriners up here in Houston and then our Shriners down in Galveston, which is literally connected with a tunnel way to our main hospital of UTMB. But um, everything now is in the process, actually, you know, starting with clinics and everything, all in Galveston, which is a benefit for us that, you know, are there in Galveston. And so that's kind of really in the up and up that we always had our acute burn hospital there with our burn reconstruction and then the congenital things, as Jackie was saying. But now it's going to be the cleft care as well as the orthopedics. So I'm really curious to see, I guess, in the next couple of years, once it's kind of under construction now of how that's going to be. But I can only really see it as benefiting us because it's closer. And are there any independent residents or fellows at any sites? No independent residents in our UTMB home program, but when we do rotate at St. Joseph's Hospital, and St. Joseph's Hospital has independent fellows that are from the Methodist program that we rotate and share cases with. At MD Anderson, of course, you have a full complement of fellowship because it's a microsurgery fellowship there at MD Anderson, and so a lot of the cases are done with fellow. And you also have the Aesthetic Center for Plastic Surgery, or ACPS, also has a fellow. There's six to eight surgeons in that group, so there's only two fellows in the group, and so there's a plethora of cases there that go uncovered and it's usually a resident just by themselves. In Austin, there's also one craniofacial fellow that's also there, but again, there's I think 12 to 14 different faculty, so she can only cover so much this year. And then at Shriners as well, there's a burn recon fellow that will help out, but I will say overall, I know that's sometimes a concern or a complaint for people going places. I don't think that has hindered or really affected me at all because even though there's a fellow at Shrine, I know both when I was there and I know Pablo, you and I were there together and I let Jackie speak, but I just, I didn't feel that the burn recon fellow, I still felt the chief of the service and you just kind of work together. Yeah. And there's not really like an animosity from what I've seen, even with fellows in other programs, it's kind of like um, a kind of a shared experience. And I personally have learned a lot from the fellows that have you know, taught me, especially at MD Anderson and even at Shrine, I had a really good fellow a couple years ago as our burn recon fellow who really taught me a lot surgically and was essentially my attending, my pseudo attending during the cases, which was actually really nice. And can you tell me a bit about what call is like? Okay, so call the first four years of residency, you take primary call. And the fifth and sixth year, you transition to backup call. We've gotten 
much busier. So we actually have two residents on primary call, meeting the first person of contact for an issue. One person stationed at Galveston main campus, and then one person will be taking call at the two peripheral hospitals near League City. And when I say station, I didn't mean that they take in-home call or anything. It's all home call, not in-hospital call. We take hand call every other day as we alternate with ortho. And we do take distal radius calls as well, like we accept them, because I know some programs actually don't accept distal radius consults from a plastic surgery standpoint. And then face call is every third day. We alternate with ENT and OMFS. So there are some days where it's both hand and face and it can get pretty busy and you end up staying in the hospital all night anyway. But I think what I really appreciate is when that does happen the next day, you know, since you don't get a post-call day, the attendings will tend to let you go early if they know that you've been up all night working or just couldn't get any sleep because the pages don't stop coming. So I think that's something pretty special that they don't expect you to power through on zero sleep. Just going off of that, because we've gotten busier, it used to be, you know, one person was covering all three of those hospitals. One of the hospitals, we call it Clear Lake, is kind of a new requirement, definitely since I've been a resident. And so since now we have, we call it mainland and island call, but then you can stack those calls, especially for the weekend. So if you were on an island call for a Friday, you would be on mainland call for a Saturday and then island for a Sunday. And then that's really your only weekend call for the most part. Um, and that's obviously just due to the size of our residency, which I think is really nice. This is obviously for plastics. It's not the same for general surgery or sometimes, you know, you do take call when you rotate with ENT I'm taking call up here, obviously, at St. Joseph's. All plastics call, though, as Jackie was saying, is definitely home call, so you don't have to stay in-house. Got it. And when you were saying that about stacking the weekend, then you're saying that's like your only weekend that month? Yes. And then also just kind of speaking on that, because, as I said, I'm up here rotating in Houston. I live down in Galveston. I'm currently in the apartment that is specifically for plastic surgery. So we have two apartments up here, one for the guys, which is next door, one for the girls, and it's a very nice three-bedroom, fully furnished apartment. And so that's just really nice, and I know right now it's not full, it just depends on the schedule, but it's also a place if anyone just wants to come up and like stay here in Houston, it's available. And can you tell me about the mid-level support across the sites? So we only have one nurse practitioner that essentially assists our chair and she sees some of the, like the post-op follow-ups and stuff like that that come in from the ER that need to be scheduled in as well, or the clinics are overbooked and she can see some patients. Mid-level support is probably more important than we realize. And I think that our program is catching on to the fact that mid-level support is necessary to, in order to run a practice. And so they're in a the process of hiring mid-levels for some of the faculty. But right now, we only have one mid-level, which is, I think, a bit of a burden sometimes on inpatient and clinical care. That's just at UTMB, though, where Jackie is right now. 
I know there's at least two nurse practitioners that basically run the clinic. And then when we go to Austin, as Pablo said, there's the fellow there, but they actually have a ton of like PAs and NPs, but they're very cool. And like, they're like, whatever you want to do, cool, cover it. We'll cover other stuff. At MD Anderson, all the faculty have a mid-level provider, a physician extender. So you see sort of the practice with them and they take care of like the clinic patients. You see some of the new consults here and there for the OR. They help with like closure and, and orders and stuff like that while they're at work still. You mentioned that, you know, the program's really great about being flexible regarding residents' interests. Are there any times where you can actually take an additional elective month where you might like explore somewhere you would want to go for fellowship or a different interest? I say yes. The way you do it is you essentially have to tell your program director early on what your intentions are. So for instance, for me, I wanted to do microsurgery. So I kind of structured my year to allow for my elective block rotations to be during a time when I'm not needed on a main rotation. And so there's some flex space where you can potentially go. And that's what I chose this year. I did a recon rotation in Austin as my elective early on in the year. And then I did MD Anderson subsequently right following. So basically I did four months of like complex reconstruction. You can do that. And I think uh, one of my other co-residents, she wanted to do sort of more complex recon as well. So she tacked that onto the tail end of her MD Anderson rotation. These are little things you can do in our program that we, with flexibility and with planning, of course, to be able to improve or, you know, enhance your education. I totally agree. You can only buy, and I don't know what the acronym is for, the RRC that like structures everything for residency, have so many electives. And so our Austin falls into that, but that's only if you want to go. So I know one of Jackie's co-residents has a family here, so it was just really hard for him to go, but he did a research month at Shriners. So again, they're very flexible, and as long as you talk to them and let them know, they'll support you for whatever. Do residents ever leave the institution? Like, can they ever do an elective month outside of any of the sites you already go to? So if you do want to do that, our institution does allow you to do that. Legally, it's difficult, and it's a time-consuming process. So for instance, if you wanted to go somewhere long distance or you wanted to go to a different place, you'd have to set up an affiliation, and that takes in our institution, at least it takes six to eight months. So it has to be planned out. So you have to know early on that you want to do that because you need to put in the paperwork for the affiliations. And the affiliations, it's not that it takes a long time to get the affiliation. It's all about the malpractice. It has to go through the legal department. We always joke that when there's like a new rotation trying to be added on or something, it's, it's stuck in legal. And it, it literally takes six months in itself to be in legal. And our resident review committee, which I'm actually a part of, own internal GME committee, they only meet uh, four times a year to approve new rotations. And so you have to solicit the request. It always gets approved. I've never seen a rotation get denied. And then you can start the affiliation agreements, which takes six months. So it has to be planned out. During which years can you kind of arrange an elective month? I think it's third, fifth, and sixth. But I, again, you know, I'm in my fourth year and I feel like I'm getting kind of a little bit of anything and everything one month for each of those years. Are there any opportunities for global rotations or like annual trips that attendings go on? Pre-COVID or post-COVID? <laughs> we haven't had anything post-COVID, but pre-COVID, there was a opportunity to go to different trips such as Austin Smiles and one of our attendings from Houston would go 
on a mission trip to different parts of the world and you could go with them. I'm pretty sure UTMB paid for a portion of it, but not the whole thing. And our Shrine faculty, actually, which are our Shrine Hospital of uh, Texas faculty for Burns, would go to different outreach clinics and do surgeries in Mexico and Latin America. Before COVID, uh, of course, you could go and you would go for a whole weekend. Essentially, you would go Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you would go see clinic patients on Friday. You'd operate all Saturday. Sunday, you would see some post-ops or do a little bit more operating and you'd fly back Sunday night. And I think we would go to Guadalajara, uh, Toluca, and all these places in Mexico and Veracruz too. They're really cool places. They're really nice when you go there. They treat you very well. It was supposed to be for your fifth year, but clearly COVID affected all of my fifth year training, so it did not go. But I think whenever COVID restrictions do let up, I think we can potentially start going back again. Is that something that like a fifth and sixth year resident could do more than once during their fifth and sixth years? They try to make it fair. So like if you, you know, they can't just take one resident the whole time. So they try to rotate them and they try to give every resident an opportunity to go if they want to, but it's optional. It's not like a mandatory rotation. So if, for instance, they asked me and I couldn't go for some reason, they would just, you know, take the person again, the next one again, and they would take someone twice or three times. It all depends on how you want to go or the timing. Before COVID, it was really frequent, like almost once a month that they would go and take a resident. And the other cool thing about these outreach clinics is they go and they identify patients that could potentially benefit from bigger surgeries to be done at Shriners in Galveston and establish that connection and help them find the funding so that they can fly over here to get surgery in the future. In this time, in 2021, I have seen patients that they've identified from two years ago who is finally coming for like a major surgery. We actually just had one today who unfortunately had a burn injury from four years ago and did not get fasciotomies. So he has bilateral severe Volkman's contractures. And so we're slowly doing releases and seeing what kind of reconstruction we can do for his tendon, whether we can do the slide or if he needs transfers, but stuff like that happens at the shrine and you get to see it. So it's pretty amazing. So you mentioned a bit about the rotations that you do with some of the private practice attendings. Is there a kind of like a resident cosmetic clinic where senior residents can book their own cases as well? No, we don't have that at UTMB. Can you just remind me like which years you do spend time with those plastic surgeons and for how long? You spend time with those plastic surgeons in the community your fourth, fifth, and sixth year. I think our program is unique in that you get a ton of exposure with different plastic surgeons and sort of aesthetic plastic surgeons in the communities around. And you essentially, your fourth year you do, when I did this, it was three months. Your fifth year you do two months and your sixth year you do three months as well. But purely sort of aesthetic rotations. That's the rotation I'm currently on. And the majority of the time I've actually been not even actually at St. Joseph's, but at one of our private practice affiliations where, you know, he has an operating room in his office. Luckily, his wife is the anesthesiologist, but I mean, he's doing his side, I'm doing my side. And I'm like, check, make sure everything's okay over here. 
I mean, I've been there, honestly, the majority of the three months that I've been here. So it sounds like you are still able to be pretty hands-on during those experiences. Yeah, it's he's on his side, I'm on my side. Go. I'd actually say that the aesthetic experience at UTMB is probably one of the better ones in all the programs because we have early exposure. And so we don't really necessarily need the senior resident cosmetic clinic because as a senior resident, you are the main person leading through the case anyway. And do you get any experience with gender affirmation surgery? It's not a set rotation, but one of our community faculty at St. Joe's does do gender affirmation surgery. I've seen them do top surgery and bottom surgery. And in our actually our Dell Seton rotation, if you have the option to, you can actually go do bottom surgery with one of our faculty out there, but you have to have that interest and you have to sort of pursue that on your own terms. We do some top surgery actually at UTMB, but there is not, you know, the whole established clinic and multidisciplinary, you know, team that I feel is really necessary for a successful gender affirmation clinic. So again, it's something that we see at least for the top, but we just don't have the infrastructure currently for it. How well do you think your program manages like resident autonomy through the years? I think it's a graduated autonomy. So the first two years, it's essentially managing like patients and the floor and sort of the, the work, but you're also in the OR early on, which is a rare thing in some programs. You're thrown into the sort of the OR and you have to start, you know, closing big wounds and stuff like that. And you slowly start doing some like little EIC removals and stuff like that early on in your training. And then your third year is where you pick up a little bit more as the chief of that shrine burn recon service. You're essentially leading the clinic in cases and you're kind of the chief of that service. Fourth year, you sort of transition to the chief of the adult recon service, the non-shrine side recon service. And you start to do more of like critical portions of the case. Your fifth and sixth year, you're expected to kind of know what, definitely what's going on and do a big majority of the case. And your sixth year, you're expected to lead the cases. That's the way that we graduate our autonomy throughout the training. And just to second that, I think it's, you know, completely as long as, as with anything, I think in life, if you show up, prove that, you know, you read about the case and you're hardworking and do all the other stuff you're supposed to as a resident, that the faculty then just learn to trust you and then you're able to do much more. Pablo was my chief for Shrine and then we did adult recon together and then Jackie was my lower level. Just kind of experiencing those services where they're pretty like operative heavy. You just, as time goes on, get a lot more autonomy. And then you kind of get to the point where you're like, I think I need some help. Can you guys go get so-and-so? So obviously I think it's good because the faculty are there. They're not always scrubbed, which I think is a good thing. Depends on the case, depends on the complexity it's real when you're in the operating room and, you know, your faculty's like, I don't need a scrub. You got, you got this. I'm right here, though. I'd just like to add as a, a PGY3, because, you know, for all our programs as a PGY3, it's a junior resident. So the shrine rotation transition to a PGY3 being the chief, essentially from start to finish, I tell the scrub tech everything I need for the case. 
I start the case, I mark the case, the attending comes in to time out and confirms or adjusts the marking. And if I need help, he'll scrub in. If I don't, then they're kind of in the background chatting with nurses and that's kind of the end of it. And so that's actually great autonomy and there are really good basic recon cases that help build your foundation. So when you are in more complex cases, you can use those same principles and apply it anywhere you go. And the awesome thing is that as a PGY2, being the junior on the service, once I'm pretty comfortable doing most of the cases, I lead the second year through those cases and kind of teach them like what to start thinking about and steps to think ahead and all of that. So it's a great experience. Now I'd love to hear about the research experience at UTMB. So kind of both the expectations and then also the support that's available. Okay, so the research experience is interesting. There's no dedicated research time like in other programs. You don't get a dedicated research year. So you have to sort of intermix your research throughout your training. And there is a basic science lab available. I don't do basic science research. And I know that I think one resident does do some basic science research or is involved in basic science research. But it is time consuming. And I think, you know, doing a research year is actually important to do the basic science portion of it, in my opinion. What we do is we sort of have like clinical research and we have a high predominance of clinical papers that we do produce. And one of the important things is that we rotate through different centers such as MD Anderson and some of our prior practice guys. So your research can be tailored to what you want interest-wise. We actually have a research meeting or quarterly resident meeting that meets four times a year. And we discuss sort of the projects, the statuses. We discuss deadlines for presentations for national, regional, and local meetings. We discuss sort of the timeline. We highlight publications. And we also host a yearly sort of UTMB-specific research symposium, which teaches the residents. That's actually mandatory. All residents have to present. And it sort of teaches you how to present a research setting in sort of a benign local venue first before you go off to national meetings. And when we do go to national meetings, we do have to meet privately with our research coordinator, which is Dr. Bransky, and sort of some of our other faculty to go over your presentation, you polish it, you make sure it sounds okay, and make sure it sounds professional, and they ask you detailed questions about it, so you are pretty confident about that, which I think is invaluable when uh, you know presenting your work and your research in the national and international setting. And then expectations, they're pretty lenient in a sense that, and correct me guys if I'm wrong, that you just are expected to publish one paper before you graduate, which is nice. But on the flip side, so if you want to be super involved with it, and I know Pablo and Jackie are a lot more involved than myself, but I love to present at conferences because if you're presenting a podium presentation, UTMB will pay for you to go. So that has been my motivation in the past to get stuff going. So I know I had gone from honestly my first, second, and third year didn't go this year, obviously, COVID stuff, but um, I know the abstracts are coming up, so I'm going to find something to write up. Is there any limit in terms of, you know, how much you can go present at conferences, as far as you know? The limit does not exist. To this point, I have not seen a limit. There is one year I went to, like, six meetings, so, so I, for me, there has not been a limit, so until someone tells me, I'm going to keep on doing what I need to do. 
I think just now, and honestly, I haven't dealt with it, obviously, with COVID stuff. You just have to let, you know, Dr. Bransky know, let the faculty know that whoever you've done the paper with, I've found in the past, it's been very lenient now. Hopefully with COVID stuff, I guess we'll see. Are there any other particularly awesome perks you'd like to share? We have like a little meal card that as residents, all UTMB residents get that they put on so much money every quarter because they try to like a lot of if you're not using it, you don't get it. I know here at St. Joseph's, there's a physician's lounge we have access to that has like hot breakfast and lunch. Austin, the same. They provide us with white coats every year. So I have too many white coats now. And then we also have a book fund how it's been is as your years progress, you have more money towards a book fund. And then we also have our own little kind of like library in our conference room. So every year, Dr. Phillips is really open to buying whatever book. And so you have access to that as well. What area of plastic surgery would you say residents come out with the strongest experience in upon graduation? I would personally say breast and body and cosmetics and burn reconstruction actually i think we are one of very few places that has as strong of a i guess just exposure to the complexity of some of the burn patients that we see i agree with that with that completely i think you have a very strong foundation to sort of do body contouring procedures and a lot of aesthetic private practice residents come out pretty comfortable with that after they finish their training here how would you improve your program? I think things to improve in our program, in my opinion, would be add a little bit of more complex reconstruction, sort of like the MD Anderson style of, of reconstruction on the island. I would, if it was not such a political fight, I would combine the orthopedic hand and orthopedic plastic surgery hand training into sort of like a hybrid mixed model where you do time on both services because they do do different things and so it's nice to see different ways to do the hand procedures. Again everything it's kind of crazy to think I'm in my fourth year I still have two more years and even in these four years though so much has changed. I really like hand but we've kind of been in this like turnover period where we had a hand surgeon then he left and now we have our other hand surgeon he's been here for more than a year. I just want more hand but maybe that's me being selfish. But I do like the idea, as Pablo was saying, of like kind of like a combined hand service. I'm sure there's lots of things that we haven't thought about of as politics go for how to do that. But that would be my personal wish list. I agree with both Brooke and Pablo. I think probably hand. And you know, what's ironic is that five, six years ago, we were very, very strong in hand. And so with a lot of the new changes in our institution and turnover, we haven't been able to go back to that level yet, but I haven't lost any hope in that. There's still a lot of people in our program that are interested in hand and match into fellowships and come out and do just fine. I think another good thing I want to add for like the perks of our program is a unique thing is that we have a sort of a resident council that we meet with our program director and our program chair, and we kind of, you know, adjust and develop the curriculum as like the residency fit. We like evaluate rotations that are no longer educational, or for instance, in the first couple of years, if you feel like you're being scutted out or doing too much scut work, they, they get reevaluated and they sort of change a little bit to improve the surgical experience. 
And those are things that are changing, which is why we have sort of like a, a wide variety of elective rotations available for you to use and have them available for residents. And there's a lot of opportunities in case you want to do anything that's career oriented or helps your career development. Now to kind of use that as a transition, I'd love to hear about your chief and your PD. So, I mean, it's not uncommon that, you know, Dr. Phillips has called me while up here in Houston and just been like, how's everything going? What are you doing? What are you specifically doing in cases, you know, just making sure that I'm involved. And if something was wrong, I know then that's like on the table for a discussion of, do you need to spend that much time there? Or honestly, she would probably make a phone call. Dr. Park is our program director, and she's been very involved with everything with like curriculum stuff as well. They're both very approachable. If you have a comment, question, concern. And what kind of a role do residents play in department decision making? So when it comes to choosing new residents or hiring faculty or anything like that? They play a huge role. It's kind of like a long process, too. Every year we interview residents and the residents are actually involved in the interview process. So it's not like just like a meet and greet in the room with the applicants. You actually interview the applicants starting your PGY three, four, five, and six year, I think, right? We interview the applicants. Yes. So we have the longest interview day. I remember coming here to interview. It definitely spoke to the, you know, the resident's opinion is important. And I felt it was one of the few places I actually, without rotating there, got to know people. So at least for, you know, the incoming residents, yeah, we get to know them very well. And then during the interview ranking process, we have at least an opinion and then the faculty meet after and do their final ranking. But, you know, if there's any red flags on any applicants or some of the applicants were exceptional and we want to make sure that we, you know, relay that to the faculty, we're able to do that. For the faculty hires, usually they bring them in for like a guest lecture or something like that. And we have, you know, breakfast with them. We also have lunch with them. We ask them questions. They ask us questions. They ask us what our plan is. So it's pretty well integrated in that situation. And now I'd love to hear kind of about the culture and relationships amongst the residents. I've definitely made some of my best friends here in residency. Both Jackie and Pablo are on my like whatever favorites most called list. I talk to at least both of them multiple times a day. I mean, we have our good old resident group chat. Even just culture-wise, one of our faculty, um, Dr. Kalaria, just graduated last year. So she's a good friend and also mentor to me. Any faculty, I feel that I could call, especially as a lower level when you're an intern on call and, you know, it's past midnight and something happens, you run it by your upper level, like, okay, call the faculty, let them know what's going on. I, of course, I was a little nervous, but I never felt that they would be angry at me calling. And so that's definitely, I think, a huge benefit because I don't think that's true really with everywhere. It's been interesting with COVID for sure, but I know a lot of us have like, if we're working together already, we'll still be seeing each other quite a bit. Yeah, I think this program is unique in that sense that the residents really, really get along. And it's not like a force get along. Oh, yeah, we're all happy to be here. It's actually we genuinely establish good, like, good friendships and both a collegial relationship and also very friendly. And we help each other out in multiple situations. And what would you say are some qualities of a resident that would fit well amongst your crew? 
I think that a resident in our program is someone that is, I always like to say hardworking, but it's not like a, you know, 20 hours a day, no sleep. I just, it's hardworking as in you're gonna, you're the driver of your own sort of like car or career path. And so the opportunities are there for you, but you have to be able to do this thing on your own. There's a lot of independence in that situation. People aren't going to spoon feed you like a, a career. You're going to basically, the opportunities are there, they're available. You just have to seek it out, which is important in any plastic surgery or any surgical training. You have to actually seek these things out. And I think you have to be open to a team mentality. I think people that are non-team players will definitely not go well here. And team players are incredibly important, especially in our field. And you have to be very, very nice. And like, you cannot be mean to nurses, you cannot be mean to support staff. Even on bad days, you have to be sort of like, have a positive attitude. And that's one of the most important things that I think any resident can have. I totally second all that you just said. I mean, I think we're a pretty social group, but we also have kind of people in every walk or stage of life. You know, we have some people that are married and have kids, but those same people will hang out with the people that are single, living in an apartment, whatever. And so, again, as I said, with like, you know, reaching out to faculty, I feel the same with like residents. And so when we're looking for a co-resident, it comes down to, you know, by the time people get an interview, you know, they've met all those checkboxes of research and step scores or whatever. But we kind of just want to be like, will we get along with you? Will I be worried about you calling me at whatever time in the middle of the night about a problem? Are you going to be able to figure that out? It really just kind of comes down to, I kind of say, like a social litmus test of, you know, are we all going to gel together? Our resident evaluation is actually very high on the rank list sort of situation. How are you fit? They value our opinion. Does your program have any experience with IMGs or non-traditional applicants? So I think four or five years ago, we expanded and we sort of opened up the program to more residency slots. And I think we got a resident that was definitely an IMG who was phenomenal. I think as we've grown in a program, we've definitely interviewed more IMGs like that. We haven't matched them. It's not because we don't want to. It's just that we, I guess, the match the way it goes because they're great applicants and we like them a lot and we rank them highly. But I don't think it's it's never like brought upon negatively that you're an IMG or anything like that. I think they're great applicants and they're great workers. And most of the people that we work with in other programs have IMGs in their training programs. And so we get along great with them. I trust them a lot. Some of them are like full-fledged physicians. And so they have a ton of experience that you learn from. And they're just like kind of starting residency all over again, which I feel kind of bad sometimes, but it does happen. And actually quite a bit of our faculty are internationally trained. Pretty much all of our recon faculty, Dr. Norbury, Dr. Bransky, Dr. Zapata, are all, I guess, foreign from the UK, attorney, and then Dr. Zapata is from Venezuela. Even from a faculty perspective, their experience has been really interesting and just a whole different perspective for her training. And now I'd love to hear a bit about like the logistics of how residents live. So I know you mentioned a bit there's kind of a spread of residents, some married with kids, all the way down to some single people. So where do people live around Galveston and like in what kind of living quarters? So Galveston is an island. 
about an hour south of Houston, and I'm from the Midwest. Had no idea that it existed before I came down for my interview. And it's a tourist town, but also it's actually very affordable for living. So my intern year, I lived with another resident, and I think I paid like six fifty a month for our house, just uh, me and another girl. And then I lived by myself in a house, and it was I think like nine hundred. And then um, I currently live with my boyfriend now, and it's in his house. So I guess I'm very lucky in that sense. That being said. Some of my single co-residents live in apartments in this area called The Strand. And that's kind of like where a lot of shops and galleries and it's where the cruise ship ports are from. And those are a little bit more expensive, maybe though like 1000 to 1500 a month, depending on, you know, size and everything. But I feel that for the most part, and that's me speaking, I guess, about island living, what people do, they rent, they buy... It's very feasible, kind of whatever you want to do. I think there's like a big mix of residents. I would say like you would split up into thirds, a residency program, and a third live on the island. A third live, you know, in the suburbs of like the Bay Area, which is where Jackie lives. And some of our other residents that have kids and family that need important school districts. And then some of us live in the inner city of Houston. As your training progresses, you spend less and less time on the island. And I personally chose live in Houston because my fiance is coming down and she works in Houston. And so I don't mind the drive. I listen to podcasts on the drive every once in a while. It's for me, it's like a 35 minute drive to Clear Lake, which is our satellite campus. And then it's about a 45 minute to an hour drive into the island. You can choose and you're not forced to live somewhere, which is nice. And Galveston, League City, which is the Bay Area and Houston are all very affordable places to live. I think the most you'll spend is like on a single apartment, it's like $1,700 a month, and that's for a high-end, high-end place. How does your program support residents that are starting a family or have families? I personally, yeah, super supportive. I think I can th- think that one of the most important things that I've learned in my residency training, and I think my future career plans are to sort of like continue with the resident training and academics is how to incorporate like family planning into residency. I think that's a huge component that's been brought up in multiple meetings. I've read multiple papers and I'm part of committees that we discuss this actively. It baffles me that other places are not as supportive because I think it's just a normal thing to be completely supportive with residents that have families. Like I think they're just part of the family. So it's like really weird when they like, oh no, I had to like take, you know, so much time. And they, I'm like, I think our residents have like a ton of maternity leave. They, I, I know their babies like, backwards and forwards. We get pictures of their babies and like, we just help each other out. I think it's a very unique place that Dr. Phillips has and Dr. Park have like sort of fostered that it's very welcoming to families. And I think you're more than welcome to have children during residency. That's the most important prime of your life. And it's really nice that you have a, a good support system from the program and from the residents. Pablo, I thought you were going to say that the most important thing you've learned from residency is how to work for and with women. That's also probably the most important thing I've learned in our program. And I think it's like extremely important. He has fully embodied this. And <laughs> I know we've had two different female residents that recently had babies in the last couple of months. One was a PGY2, one is a PGY6. And, you know, both of them had their maternity leave. I won't speak on, you know, their personal experience with it, but... 
everyone just knew they were going to have a baby and there was just no question, no concern. And I just, even myself, I just don't feel that it would be like an issue. I feel that you just have to talk to both Dr. Park and Dr. Phillips and, you know, they would be amenable to whatever, looking at your schedule and if that needs to be, you know, switched around or whatever. It's kind of like a group discussion and I would think and hope that everyone is open for the most part to that discussion of like, hey, I think this is happening with my life, whatever that might be. Are you cool with this either switch or change? I feel that like I owe Pablo a lot of favors, Jackie too, but then I know I've I've spotted them sometimes too. Is it necessary to have a car as a resident? Yes. In Texas, no matter where you are in Texas, you need a car. There's extremely long distances everywhere you go. Texas is a surprisingly very large state, which I didn't appreciate or realize until I moved down here from the Midwest. It takes days to drive across versus most, I guess, north, uh, east, and midwest states. <laughs> and so beyond kind of things you've already mentioned, what do you like about living in the Galveston-Houston area? The weather. Okay, we had a minor issue with, you know, the major Texas freeze here recently. Hopefully once in a lifetime. The weather is like super nice most of the time of the year. Obviously it gets hot in the summer, but I don't think I can ever go back to the Midwest. I know I was just with my friend and faculty, Dr. Claria, walking in Herman Park here in Houston for a good hour. It's like high 60s, beautiful. And then I think even this weekend, my boyfriend and I were looking to uh, maybe go uh, set up on the beach. So <laughs> that's our weekend plans. And it's what, mid-March. It's always weird to think, because I think we're so focused in our medical world and our hospital world. But it's so weird to think that Houston, Galveston, sort of the Metroplex area is like the third and fourth biggest, largest city in the U.S. And so there's a ton of things to do. Like there, every weekend, there's something to do. Even during COVID in Texas, people were a little bit lax. But there's a bunch of things to do. The restaurant scene is incredible in Houston and Galveston. Like, the food is unparalleled, in my opinion. There's a big airport. There's two big airports, actually. You can fly out internationally and, like, locally. And I think that's huge, especially for people that have families in the Midwest or on the East Coast or anywhere else. Pre-COVID, I would fly to Mexico a lot because uh, I have family in Mexico. And it was, like, a literally, like, an hour and a half flight sometimes into Mexico City, which is unheard of. I just get in the car and go and be there. And it's actually really nice in that sense. I just want to add that along with the food, I feel like this Houston Galveston area is pretty diverse. It adds a nice touch. And, you know, I'm Asian, if you can't tell by my last name, there's a lot of great food in Houston. And I appreciate that there's a sense of inclusivity overall here in the Houston area and especially at UTMB. And I can attest to that personally, since I was here as a medical student. So I've, I've been here for a few years now. They definitely foster a really nice sense of community and include everyone. There's lots of diversity and inclusion events. And we actually just hosted one last September or October. That's all to say that it's a very encouraging environment so I think that's uh, pretty much everything I wanted to talk about today. Any final thoughts either on your program or on the process of choosing a residency? Well, whenever things go back to normal after COVID, I definitely recommend 
if they're capable and able and financially able to do it, to do a weight rotation. So I think that's like the best way to really see what a program is like. And I think that's how you figure out your fit. I think the most important thing is the program itself is, is good. And no matter where you go, your training is going to be the same or equivalent across the country. There's going to be strengths and weaknesses wherever you go. But the most important thing is you need to be able to work well with people for six years. And people feel like they don't really understand that six years is a long time to train. And so it's good to be at a place that is both receptive to resident uh, education and resident changes and, you know, but also receptive to your lifestyle, which is like family planning, cities, places to live, resident camaraderie and resident sort of like support. I think I would second pretty much everything that you said. I remember going through the process and, you know, it's awesome even to get the interviews. It's a hard process. And then I remember looking at how many residents per class there were. And I don't know why, it just kept sticking out to me that places that had more residents, I liked them. Obviously, logistically, you know, call is going to be a little bit better. But it really does come down to when you meet those residents, whether however many there are, I personally liked more residents in a program. The residents and the faculty, if you feel that you click with them, and I and feel it really is probably hard with this whole virtual thing, but I saw that on our interview day without having done an away rotation, but away rotations, man, I wish I could suggest that literally for any medical student going into any specialty, just because you don't know if you like that whatever specialty just because you like the people in it, but see how it is, you know, somewhere else just to make sure you like it. And I just think it's such a good experience, you know, learning a different medical culture and just seeing a different way that that specialty is practiced. Do you have any like particular piece of advice for students like when they are on an away rotation? It's an addition. Available, affable, able, and attitude is my four A's that I like to say. Because, you know, attitude is important and you, it's exhausting to basically have a smile on your face for a whole month. I can tell you that I don't think I could do that again now, but you have to be knowing that everything is being looked at. And so it's a difficult balance to be able to be too much or too little in the OR and here and there and try to impress too much. But if you're yourself, that comes across genuinely. And when you're faking it, we see it. There's no way to hide faking things. And so always be yourself, always be cordial, always be respectful, and always be on time. That's a big pet peeve of mine. Always be on time. Two things. Be on time. And by on time, because I'm always like a couple minutes at least early for the most part, you better already be there. That's my one thing because I've even had away rotating students as well as other just medical students and they just can't get the whole time thing right. And then my other thing that I think really helps and goes far in anything in life is learn people's names. Because people always talk about, you know, getting along with either the nurses or I really try to learn our anesthesia residents' names and faculty versus being, hey, anesthesia. When you know your either scrub tech or your circulator's nurse's name and you say, hey, so-and-so, can you please get me this? Your life is just going to be so much easier. And when people tell me, oh, I'm so bad with names, I'm like, just try them and see how your life improves is my, I guess, on top of what Pablo said, big advice things. I agree. The name is life-changing. It just adds such a personal touch. 
How could interested applicants find out more about your program? I'll send you our contact information and you can sort of reach out to our program, the residents, and we're more than happy to get you in the right sort of communication. UTMB has its own like application for visiting students and away students. Just let us know. <laughs> They'll squeeze you in. It's not like a big deal. I think it's just a big deal for like the credits or like the academic portion of it. It's a good thing to just speak out to the residents. We're all more than willing to talk and showcase our program and showcase what we're doing down here. We have an Instagram a UTMB plastic surgery that is pretty much resident run. So if you want to send a message in that, I know that myself and Jackie both have access to that. Thank you guys so much for, you know, sharing your experiences with me today. And I know anyone listening is going to really, really appreciate all you've shared. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jennifer, for inviting us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.